market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me as always on a Sunday, Dr. Ian Mahati. How are you, Doc? Good day, Captain. You know, I think when we say special, we can say special. It's special. It's special. It's special. If Bruce McAvaney can say special, I can say special, mate. But what, what, what special. Do you, but what do you think about the other episode that we did? That was not special? No, this is a special Sunday one. That's a special Friday one. Okay. They're all special. Okay. As long all, as, all our children, we love all our children equally, Doc. Yeah, because as long as you're not discriminating against my Friday <laughs> one, then I'm fine. Okay. I would not dare. I would not dare. Okay, okay I'm with you. This special. Is, it's, all, it's all special. Special. Thanks, Bruce. All right. Uh, <laughs> so let's start with a tangent, isn't it? And as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is being pre-recorded. Uh, I am. I was in Dubbo. Now I'm in Bathurst. If you believe that. Wow. I know. How did that happen? Did you fly? I drove. Okay. Yeah. So I'm now in Bathurst. Believe it or not, through the magic of radio, uh, we're recording this while before I leave on holidays, but I'm off for a couple of weeks. So if anything blows up in the meantime on the markets, I'm holding you personally responsible, Doc. Is all I'm saying. If I get back on Tuesday, and this thing is a mess. I'm pointing my finger directly at you. And I'm pointing at your holiday. <laughs> you blaming me for it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm out there spending money in regional New South Wales. I'm I'm building the economy. I'm doing my bit. That's exactly the, that's, the that's exactly my point. You're spending it in the wrong place. The market is blowing up. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Let's not okay. assume that. Okay, let's let's assume the market's hitting new highs. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Fingers Stay crossed. positive. Fingers crossed. <laughs> exactly. Does that help? I think so. I wish I believed in that stuff. The whole power of positive thinking and the whole, you know, if I, if I believe it, if I manifest it, it's true, all that kind of stuff. You're a manifester? No. No, me then. No. All right. <laughs> you can't really be in finance, can no. you? <laughs> You'd be disabused that notion pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. The number of losses I have, I'm like, oh, if, I could, if I was any good at that, it'd happen by Just now. the volatility would make you <laughs> feel like that's, that's nothing. <laughs> what have I done? I've offended the universe. Shares yeah. are down. All yeah. right. We definitely need to move on. <laughs> Let's start with a question from Daz, mate, just to get us back on track. Hey, Scott, I have a question for the potty. Can you call it potty? I don't know. I don't know about abbreviation for podcast. Is it potty? Oh, we'll take it. Yeah. It's potty. You know, if, well, if, if you know, I'm assuming Daz likes us podcast. I assume so. so. If that's the case, then he can call it potty. Okay. How do you approach reporting season as part of your investment strategy? Specifically, the upcoming August half yearly reports where I feel we might see a better picture of the impact of COVID. Any insight into how to make better buy and sell decisions is much appreciated. As always, you guys make an awesome podcast. Cheers, Daz. Thank you, Daz. It's very kind of you. Doc, we are recording this in June. Mm-hmm. It'll go to air in mid-July. It gives us about two weeks to do something, if anything, before reporting season starts. Confession season possibly already started, though, quite frankly. How do you approach reporting season from a buy and sell perspective? Well, you know, first of all, like, I mean... Uh, okay, so first of all, I think a lot of our companies, the smaller ones, would have their 4Cs lodged by the end of July. Oh, and tell us what a 4C is. Uh, so 4C is basically the quarterly statement, right? So the quarterly statement will come through uh, for these companies, the small companies that yeah. have to report their numbers, or at least the cash flow statements. Basically. Right, so big companies report every six months. Yeah. Little companies are admitted onto the ASX under a, a kind of a, a slightly different set of rules. They have the same rules as the big bo- big boys, but they also have to submit a cash flow statement quarterly yeah. as a kind of a recognition that if this is going to go badly, investors want to be able to know what they have to wait six months for the, for the bad news yeah. or the good news maybe in that case as well. So a 4C is their cash flow statement released quarterly. Yeah. Okay. So that would give us some pictures. Some com- uh, some companies are going to release uh, commentaries alongside that. Yeah. Some some might even release their preliminary half year results there as well, right? I mean, because they can. Um, so that gives us a point. I mean, in general, I 
don't think most of the time you don't need to act mm. because an information has been released unless something materially changes your thesis mm. um, or a price has materially moved up and down in a way that it impacts your thesis. So mm. most of the time I'm trying not to do anything. Um, <laughs> that said, I've been, you know, I've been saying that I think this reporting season is going to be dreadful. It's going to be dreadful because of, there's going to be a lot of unknowns that's going to play out and it's going to play out on the upside and the downside, I think in the both ways. Mm. And it's going to be, you know, dreadful in the sense that it's going to be volatile and so on and so forth, um, largely for that reason. So I think I'm mentally prepared for that, but mm. I think that's the, you know, there's this natural things that happen, you know, expectations are matched, expectations are not matched. And I think there's a, there's a little bit of a wonkiness going on around what the expectations are yeah. or shouldn't be around this time. So nothing special happens it, it, uh, other than it gives us an opportunity to sort of have a digger look into, uh, you know, dig deep into the financials and see what's going on, get, you know, hear management's commentary about the, what has happened and what they think is going to happen. Um, jump on some earning call, earning, earnings calls, listen to how they answer questions and things like that. Uh, sometimes we ask questions too. Um, yeah, so it's that's a, it's sort of the normal process. I, th- I think nothing. I would say nothing special happens just because uh, of uh, earnings, and I would say nothing special yeah. is happening in my process just because it's COVID. But I'm mentally prepared for a lot of volatility. I think that's right. I think, look, here's the thing, Daz. If, if we kind of knew what was going to happen, we probably would have already done something about it. And if we didn't know what was going to happen, then there's every chance that, that a surprise is positive as well as negative. If, if you have a general view that you've got negative surprises coming up, then I, I guess you could take a different perspective. Maybe you could cash out or do something if you thought you were right. Um, the problem is you kind of, you're relying a lot, on, you're kind of betting your investment portfolio on a single guesstimate, right? If you're right, maybe you make some money. If you're wrong, you probably lose some money. Overall, I mean, you're kind of trying to speculate in the short-term movement in share prices. And I think that's a little bit dangerous. If you don't, look, what I would say is earnings season can be a useful time if you want to use it for this to really reassess what companies you're holding. If you honestly think you're worried about a company going to earnings season because you think the business is worth worse sorry, than the rest of the market thinks, that's probably a good sign you should sell it anyway, not because of what it might say to earnings season per se, but because of what you think about the company. If you're otherwise saying, well, I don't really care what happens to my company X in earnings season because I love it for the next 10 years, then selling with the chance that maybe the share price falls and then maybe you buy it back, maybe it goes up and maybe you don't buy it back and it never goes lower again. You kind of add a whole lot of these psychological traps to your investing. I think it's probably a net negative um, more often than not. And again, this is a case of like everything probabilities. Um, if you're right about something, you, know, you, you might think that, let's pick a company, Woolies is going to have a terrible earnings season. You don't sell it because I said not to. And then you go, oh, bloody Phillips, he's cost me some money. Uh, maybe that's true. Uh, maybe Coles that goes the other way. Uh, you know, overall, again, you can't know. Um, it's the same as any other time. It, you know, if, if you think the market's wrong about a stock at any other time, you should sell it if you think it's worth selling, not just because of earnings season. Yes, an announcement is likely to be share price moving. Um, but again, if you, if you think the whole, the whole market's overvalued, that's a different question. But over time, if you invest in the right companies, trying to speculate on short-term price movements is generally not a great idea in our experience. You're much, much better off rolling with the the appropriate punches, as they say, um, and just simply kind of, you know, dealing with the volatility rather than trying to avoid it or to get too cute or too clever, um, trying to avoid it. So, yeah, look, I, yeah, I, I think I think the other thing is, by the way, between now and then, if it's any big news, companies will be forced to actually pre-announce that. So if they're going to miss earnings, you're going to find out about it sometime between now and the end of the month anyway. Um, and so, you know, to some degree, if you're waiting for August, you know, when, when do you stop, when do you start? What does the share price go up and down? 
if you'd sold out in March waiting for more bad news, most share prices are up meaningfully since then, for example. Um, you know, you potentially missed out on a heap of a heap of upside while you're waiting for something you expected to happen and vice versa. So generally, our ability as investors anywhere, speculators to, to guess short-term share prices is limited. Um, if you're not good at something, Howard Marks, the, the famed value investor, says there are things that are important but unknowable. And there are things that are important and knowable. Focus on the important and knowable stuff. The important and unknowable is like, I I wish I knew the answer to that, but I don't. So I'm not going to waste time trying to speculate. I think that's where I'd put earnings season. Is that fair, Doc? I think it is very fair. Good question though, Daz. Thank you, mate. Hey, question from Nick. Hi, Scott and Doc. Love your pod and your social media commentary. Nick, you're a generous man. I I do tend to tee off on social media a little bit, so (laughs) it's very kind of you to say. I I think I probably uh, am probably more divisive on the old Twitter than I am on the podcast, put it that way. But if you want to follow me, feel free, at TMFScottP on Twitter. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti on Twitter. Safe to say, Doc, I'm a little more outspoken on Twitter than you are. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I don't speak much. (laughs) I I try to stay away from controversy. (laughs) I really probably should, but I can't help myself. Um, So yeah, at Anirban Mahanti, at TMFScottP, or the corporate account at The Motley Fool AU. He says, I'm still a diversified ETF investor. I'm busy with family. Fair enough. But always find your insights into investing and individual stocks. Thank you, mate. Question. I noticed two... Pinnacle A-Shares Active ETFs, so this thing called Pinnacle A-Shares ETF, will wind up on the 25th of June. The quote was, they did not reach sufficient scale to be economically viable, close quote. Personally, I think this ETF consolidation is good. Could we expect to see more of this in the next year or so as the cream rises to the top of the thumb, as he says, and small niche funds with low volume don't last? Or is it better to have more funds available across more issuers to continue increasing competition? Cheers, Nick. I had not. I had missed the pinnacle news. I have to say, Doc. I don't follow a lot of ETFs in a lot of detail, particularly on active ETFs personally. But your thoughts, mate? Will we see consolidation? Is it better to have more? How, how, what do you think of the ETF industry as it currently sits? Well, okay. So I think having diversity of choice to an extent is important mm-hmm. because you know if you had only one company issuing ETFs, then that company could command whatever fees it wanted to, right? Uh, So having a few out there uh, essentially ensures that there's some equilibrium in pricing. (laughs) Um, So that's number one. Um, Also, if you have a few competitors out there, then you get, you know, you get the variety that you want, some active, some passive, different Mm. sectors, different indices and things like that. I absolutely do agree, like you know, this observation that Nick is making, that you know, it's really going to be hard for the smaller ETFs mm. unless you have a very strong value prop. Like, I mean, mm. you it is going to be hard to survive, right? So, I mean, if this active active fund managers operating as ETFs is a relatively new thing. Yeah. Um, and... You know, it, it is a relatively new thing because, you know, as an active fund manager, you're releasing, as an ETF, you have to release all your position data, mm. right? So it takes away that. that could be ugly. <laughs> you know, so that, I mean, basically, you're, you know, somebody else can replicate it. So you're basically saying that it's not worth your time and effort to yeah. replicate it. Yeah. Um, and therefore, I, and, and, and you need to have really good performance to actually mm. enable that. So I think some of that will happen. But again, I, I do think that, you know, niche guys are going to not be. Uh, viable. That's what I think. Yeah, good point. I actually agree with almost all your points, Doc. Um, I think the competition is useful and healthy. Uh, that being said, I think I'm really I'm a little bit dirty on the active ETF industry. I got to say, mate. Let me let me put it out there now, because you know we talked about index funds in the old days. Index fund, low cost index fund was the the holy grail to matching the market for a low fee, right? That Vanguard's 
low-cost index fund, and it was a managed fund you invested in off the market. You sent them a check or direct deposit or BPay, and they did their thing. And then they, they started listing on the market. So all of a sudden, index ETFs were great. And you could do it much easily, much more simply, no forms, no you know, no sending checks. You just did, bought it on your brokerage account. It was a great way to do it. The problem is then other funds said, hey, we can do use that structure as well. And so ETF used to mean low-cost index fund. Now it means whatever you want it to mean. As you say, it's literally just a fund that's exchange traded, which is fine. I mean, that's all that's all the term is ever supposed to mean. I feel like there's kind of a bit of a halo effect though, given some of those active funds, because Vanguard is, an, is a low-cost index fund. There's some other low-cost index funds from BlackRock and others. And so to some degree, they kind of rode that halo effect. If ETFs are good, therefore we'll launch an ETF and get some money. Um, I'm not sure entirely, you know, they're entitled to do it, of course, but that kind of drafting of the of the positive um, the positive vibes, the positive sentiment, I think was you know not very helpful for most investors. Um, yeah, look, Nick, same as same as funds. By the way, we're seeing funds themselves close down. ETFs should be no different if they're active. If you can't get enough money, it's simply not worth your while. The the costs. I got to say, like you know, I'm I'm pretty critical of people charging too much to manage a fund. But if you're charging one percent, I mean, if you're charging, if you if you generate hundred million dollars of fun, funds under management, in other words, if you if you manage hundred million dollars of other people's money, at one percent, that's only a million dollars. Now, I want to say only, it's a lot of money, but you're paying someone to provide data, you're paying someone to do your broking, you're paying someone to give your do your trustee, you're paying someone to to be the responsible entity. The chance you've got, maybe I don't know, maybe you've got point three point four left after all those fees, and then you've got to pay your staff with three or four hundred thousand dollars. Again, you got one person, you're doing pretty well. You got five people. You know, to, to imagine you can't make money with a $100 million fund is, is hard, but at even 1%, which is pretty extraordinarily large compared to, say, a 004 for Vanguard or something, um, it's, it's a tough business. So I get why they would, you know, go out of business if they can't simply charge enough to cover their costs. I think we'll see more of that just as we see more managed funds go away. And I don't mind that at all, frankly. I don't think there's a need for active ETFs at all. Um, that doesn't, I'm not saying they can't happen, just that there's no kind of fundamental market need for them. Um, I, I'm, I, I think if we lost... Some index ETFs, I'd be a bit less happy. If BlackRock went out of the market, it was only Vanguard left or vice versa, um, that pressure on fees maybe might go away. So I think competition is always helpful where they exist. Active ETFs, though, really are, should be seen, frankly, as part of the fund management business rather than the index ETF business. So you know there are plenty of managed funds out there. The fact that few of them are ETF structures is not going to be a problem for anybody. There's plenty more managed funds. There's more popping up every day. Uh, plenty of options for you if you wanted to, to find somewhere to invest. Again, if they're off the market, it's a little bit harder. But in terms of style and fee structure and everything else, they're probably better considered a managed fund than than as akin to an index ETF. Is that fair, Doc? I think so. Beautiful. Thank you, mate. A question from David. Love your podcast and investment services. Thank you, mate. I joined Share Advisor, Dividend Investor and Extreme Opportunities and have around 52 holdings including many of the shares you have recommended over the past year. Thank you, mate. I love the education I've received from you. Oh, he's filling us with praise, dude. Uh, while I've always invested for the long term, I sold most of my holdings in March as the COVID pandemic hit and bought back early enough so that my portfolio has risen 3% over the last five months. Well done. Well, I felt happy selling out, it was then a lot harder to buy back in, exactly, as I originally planned, and I can see the wisdom of letting it ride as you have often advocated. I love your services, but one fundamental question has always troubled me. I like this question, mate. How do you know your Motley Fool recommendations are doing well because of the underlying business quality, as opposed to the fact that thousands of Motley Fool subscribers are itching to blindly follow your advice? How do you distinguish what you might, uh, what you do from a pump and dump outfit? Oh, dear. That's a guilt by association, David. Um, he said, is the answer, in fact, you rarely issue sell recommendations? Presumably, any false increase in share price will eventually be repriced by the efficient wider market. Are there numbers you can give to put this possible Motley Fool effect in perspective? 
For example, the average share price changes for recommended stocks at 1, 7, 30, and 180 days after recommendation as a group by service would be very interesting. Are there companies you would recommend but they are too micro-capped to be free of that MFE or the Motley Fool effect? If so, what is the minimum size of a pool you'll consider swimming in? And does it have to change as your subscriber base grows? Are you able to give some sort of idea about the size of your membership and the scale or significance of their collective actions? He says, feel free to paraphrase the above questions if need be. I didn't do that. I read them out word for word, but thank you, David. Keep up the great work and full on, David. I love being held to account, mate. I'm glad people get a chance to ask this. And I'm glad we get a chance to answer it on the air. We could have just avoided this question, by the way. No one would have known except for David and us. Uh, but I'm happy to put it out there and have that conversation. I will start by saying, David, we're respectfully not going to release membership numbers. Um, very little of our business is, is opaque. Uh, we do, for commercial reasons, not share that one more broadly. So apologies up, up front. That's the one thing I won't talk about. Um, and I'll ask Doc not to talk about just because it's our competitors are possibly listening. Maybe they're not. And it really doesn't matter all that much. But um, like most things in business, giving your competitors a free kick is not a, not a good starting point. So we won't share that publicly. I hope you don't mind. Um, but we will answer the rest of the questions, Doc. So... Let's go with the Motley Fool effect. And his question up front, how do you distinguish what you do from a pump and dump outfit? In other words, as he says, how do you know they're doing well because of the underlying business as opposed to the fact that thousands of subscribers are itching to blindly follow your lead? What do you say? Yeah, so, okay. So there is, uh, like on smaller companies, on the companies we recommend on sex stream opportunities, there is... Um, if it's, a, if it's a smaller company with less number of shares available for trading, there is a pop that does happen, which is basically a large number of people trying to buy at the same time. And I'll mm -hmm. completely acknowledge that. The way, there are a couple of things. He's already answered that. One, we don't buy and sell frequently. Yeah. We, you know, we, like, I mean, the only reason we might buy and sell something is the thesis has changed and the share price has probably, you know, gone south badly or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So it's not that we're trying to book a 10, 20% gain. That's number one. Number two is that the way we account ourselves is that we, when we release a recommendation mm -hmm. at that point, um, we would bear still the brunt of the pop. So for example, if, um, you know, the extreme opportunities recommendations come out in, in midday, on on a Wednesday, for example, and uh, you know, soon there's a flood of people maybe trying to buy, and that causes the share price to let's say go up by five eight percent. Uh, we get the pricing at the end of the day, so we still get the uh, the pop that is caused by the buying, right. and then we are graded based on that price. So there's a hill to climb uh, for myself as as an advisor and and. Know, or and Kevin and I who are working on the service, and we have a hill to climb. If if we yeah. cause something to go up by ten percent right, or fifteen percent, right, right. um, that hill we have to climb. We have to beat the market. After, <laughs> you know, we we don't get the fifteen percent free kick. So that's number one. Yeah. Number two, I think, is as again he has pointed this out already, is. If it is, a, and we always say this, that you know, there's no need to rush, and you shouldn't rush. It allows you to disperse the load of requests. Is the moment people, if there are, if the, if the, if for a company the shares are relatively illiquid mm, or less mm. frequently traded, mm. they're always blocked. There are always big holders or someone holding the stock in block, yeah. right? If somebody sees that the price has gone up substantially, they will use that opportunity then to maybe sell some or something like that. It creates liquidity in that market in that mm. sense. But uh, the thing to realize is that anything that is not really permanent business-wise or reflective of in some way for the market overall to mm. realize its value has gone up is not sustainable. 
Yeah, right. Okay. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the time what would happen is that there's a pop and that pop would dissipate over time um, unless, you know, the company reports numbers and the market reassesses its value mm. uh, correctly or inaccurately, but it can go up or down based on that. Really, that's that's really what should be happening. Yeah. I mean, theoretically speaking, if the market had accurately uh, magically identify mm-hmm. the value of the company, then the company should st- steadily trade in that plus or minus a little bit yeah, yeah. for the trade until there's new information that's coming out, right? Yeah. Which typically would be every quarter for a small company, right? So between that quarter, there should be no change in value, but that value changes us uh, because, you know, people are buying in and out and things like that. Mm. So we we don't have, we don't do this and this is, okay, then, and the answer I gave is mostly reflective of small companies. Yeah. Like for a typically larger company, which, in, you know, we talk about let's say Kogan, we would not move the price of Kogan um, uh, because those companies have enough number of shares going through. Um, we would not be buying, you know, our recommendation would not cause a 10% allocation movement or something like that mm-hmm. enough to to move the price. Yeah. So that's, not, that's, that's the thing. Finally, I think the thing to, another thing to note is that we often, if we like a company, we have made a recommendation, we might make another recommendation, yep. right? And while we would, when we make a re-recommendation of something, people, um, what ideally we would want everyone to buy who wants to increase the allocation of the company. Mm. But a lot of times mm. people don't buy because, you know, people want to buy something new and it's not new, so they would not buy it. Doesn't In those cases, we would not be moving the market at all. So, um, you know, yeah. again, it's all temporary uh, dislocations that happen mostly at the small to micro cap end. Um, we also, allow, this is the last bit, and you know, I don't want to take too much time to answer this. because we can No, it's an important one. Because I'm going into, going into technicalities now. One of the things <laughs> that we we do look at, and then at least Kevin and I, for example, would look at, I know the Hidden Gems team, which looks mm-hmm. at small micro cap companies, they also look at, uh, they would look at uh, how much trading volume has yep. typically been available over, let's say, the last month or so, or then the recent past. Yep. If there is no trading volume, we typically, even if you like the stock, we might mm. not actually recommend it because it's just no trading volume. Yeah. If there's no trading volume, then you know, typically that's an indication that, you know, there's not enough there for it to be regular. So we do those obvious things um, to... Uh, to take care of things, uh, to mm. take care of the again, causing a pop is never in <laughs> our uh, interest, and we actually right. never want to cause that because that's that's just an unnecessary market dislocation, a temporary one, um, which you know basically doesn't help anyone. Yep, covered it, mate. Uh, I'm going to add some thoughts, uh, mainly to reinforce what you said in a lot of ways, because it is a really important one for our business and for us as individual investors, and, and frankly, kind of our credibility and other things. And not that David's questioning it, but he's asking a good question. So. Um, David, as, as, as Doc said, let me, let me repeat a couple of things. Um, the first thing, as Doc said, we we actually don't get our cost base until our members go first. So if we create a pop, we wear the, we wear the cost of that. And I did do some numbers actually in for share advisors, I'm re- refer, uh, repeating the point, is that because this numbers, I almost said, it was probably about two years ago, Doc. So again, kind of a little bit ancient history, but the average increase in price after recommendation was something like 2 point something percent, maybe 2.4 something from memory. In other words, our track record is 2.4% worse off and when you think about you know the average market gain of ten percent a year, we're giving up a quarter of a year's gain on every recommendation, um, in theory, uh, because of the buying demand that we can sometimes create. Now, as Doc said, I'd rather that be zero for our sake and for our members' sake, but that's the reality. And so we we cop that and we cop that willingly. We accept that's what happens. Um, we could put our cost base as the price it was before we made the recommendation. I.e., we saw it at a dollar, so we think our buy price is a dollar. We don't do that. We say, well, if we think it's if it was a dollar yesterday and it's a dollar ten when it closes today because um, it, it members pushed it up, 
then our cost base is dollar ten. So we have to we have to wear that. Uh, it could be dollar two or dollar three, by the way. I'm not not meant to be, um, you know, hyperbolic about it, but that's just the reality. So we, we wear the extra, and we're completely okay with that. Not not stoked about it, but but okay with it. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, Doc's already said, over time, whatever whatever you know pop we create, the market will find its own way over, over the period of time afterwards. Like it just does. Um, the simple reality is that um, you know. For the price to stay that high, let's say the price is fair at a dollar. Let's say it's pushed a dollar ten because we recommended it. If everyone else in the market thinks it's a dollar and no one else pays a dollar ten after after the recommendation, then the next trading price is going to be a dollar, and we're going to lose ten percent on that recommendation. So we're actually going to start behind rather than ahead if the market corrects back to that kind of previous level. So again, you know, I don't think the market's super efficient. To be fair, so you you asked about the efficient market. I don't think it is efficient, but it does reflect the combined sentiment of buyers and sellers. And if you take our buyers out after the recommendation has been released. Then in three months' time, there's no good reason why the price should be have any motley fill effect because we've stopped telling people to buy it. I mean, it's still listed, listed as a buy, but I don't think anyone's adding real value to it or volume to it you know, after that. So that's that's the next thing. Um, I don't know if you mentioned, Doc, uh, when we sell, we have to do the same thing. So we tell our members to sell and then we record the sell price. So if we do create a, a pop, we're also going to cop the drop if we create a drop by telling people to sell. So again, we hit both ways. We hit on the upside, then we hit on the downside on the way out. Um, the How do we differ from pump and dump? Pump and dump is absolutely about, hey, you should, firstly, we if we're doing an illegal pump and dump, we would buy first. So not only would we recommend it, we would literally buy shares. So if Doc and I were going to go, hey, tell you what we'll do, we'll buy shares in Woolies, then we'll tell everyone to buy it. When they do, we'll sell it. That's what pump and dump is, right? We pump it, then we dump it. Um, we don't buy before our members ever in any of our services. Sometimes we do own the stocks we recommend, but that's different. Um, and then subsequently, if we want, I, then I can't sell, Doc can't sell, no one can sell from the Motley Fool who's on that service until we formally recommend to sell. So if I push the price of Woolies up 5%, it's literally of zero value to me because I can't sell the shares. If I want to sell, I tell members to sell first, then wait for them to sell, then wait two days, and then I get to, to sell my shares. And so if I've created a pop and I create a separate drop, um, then it does me absolutely no good. Uh, again, a pump and dump would be buy first, tell other people to buy, then sell quickly. We don't do any of that. We do exactly the reverse. We, we tell them to buy, then we buy, then we tell them to sell, then we sell. So we're getting the worst of both worlds. We're completely okay with that, by the way. Um, but that's that's the difference between us and a pump and dump in that in that context. Um, Doc's answered the small stuff. Uh, it does depend on by service, to be fair. So we, t- we say the same approach with SA and, or share advisor, sorry, and most other services the same way. So there you go. That's that's our approach. Um, we take our, our ethics and our morals super seriously. Well, firstly, ASIC keep us to account. But more importantly, frankly, than that is that we have a higher ethical standard than ASIC require and impose, um, given our trading policy, given our need to wait two days either side of a trade, all that kind of stuff that we talk about. Um, super, super important to us. So... Um, is there a monthly full effect on day one? Sometimes yes. Is that effect likely to last? No. The last thing I will say, by the way, we've got plenty of losers on our scorecards. If there was truly a monthly full effect, we wouldn't have those losers. So yeah, the, the average movement after you know, 1, 7, 30, 180 days after recommendation, after 180 days, the average move is, is far, just, you couldn't separate that from the average market or the average stock anyway. The sample error, you couldn't statistically do it in a way that made any sense. Um, if the average was up, the average was down, it wouldn't tell you anything other than, you know, what the market's doing or what we're doing or the sector's doing or our ability to stock pickers or anything else. Trying to separate out any motley full effect from that would be, I, literally, I would think impossible given the number of samples, all that kind of stuff. So without getting too wonky into the numbers and Doc's more a statistician than I am, trying to separate that out would just be, you couldn't do it. It'd be it, it just a, a fool's errand. No, no pun intended. Any more for that, Doc, before we move on? No, sir. Beautiful. Another David. I trust another David. Uh, love your work and your services. Oh, hi, Scott and Doc. Love your work and your services are great. Thanks, David. 
I have about 20K invested in each of my three kids' names. Well done. With myself as trustee for them. They are starting to bump into the maximum juvenile threshold for income. Yeah, that's a problem. And as a result, I have realized their starter portfolios would be better focused on growth with little dividends. In my own portfolio, I have enough to try the smaller tech stocks, but hesitate to adopt that much risk with these smaller portfolios as I can't buy 20 of them without paying a lot of brokerage. Can you recommend strategies for finding slightly less risky, better quality growth stocks that don't pay any dividends? David. What do you reckon, Doc? Um... So I mean I mean most of the companies that don't pay a dividend tend to be on the SX at least tend to be small. Mm. That's the uh, by definition the reason they don't pay a dividend is that they're still in growth mode and they're relatively small. So um, now the only thing I would say is that small necessarily does not mean more risky than big because big can be also risky. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing to realize is just because something appears to be blue chip, it's not necessarily blue chip. <laughs> something appears as small, it is not necessarily uh, that much more riskier. So that's the only thing I'd say is that, you know, I think you, you can consider the business model and, um, you know, so I'd say that if you think about smaller, like tech mm-hmm. type businesses that are capital light, mm-hmm. um, they may not be as risky as it appears they are, right? Because the effective cost base is not that big mm. and they have the potential to actually uh, leverage up on the upside. So yeah. that's the thing I'll point out. But I don't have any other effective strategies to, like, I mean, if you don't want to, because, I mean, most of the bigger, m- mid to big size companies yeah. would pay some dividend. I mean, the other thing maybe to pick, stay in the mid cap sort of zone, which is sort of a share advisor mm-hmm. place, where most of the companies would have some dividend maybe, but a very small dividend. Maybe that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, super hard. I, I don't have it. This is, I, I hate this problem, David, because there is no easy solution. Um, so, you know, first I'll just say, oh, we don't know. Um, and, and why I hate it is because it was forced on us by people screwing with the system. So you could invest for kids properly and then people start to screw with it and basically invest for themselves and, and take, take claim the, the kids' tax-free threshold, right? And so the government's gone, well, if you idiots are going to do that, well, I'm going to have to put some rules in place to stop it. And so we, you know, talking about tragedy of the commons, we're getting whacked because um, because other people wouldn't do the right thing. Now that's, you know, I'm not naive enough to expect they would or they should or, you know, all that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm nothing if not a pragmatist, um, but it's pretty crappy that we have to deal with that. Um, no dividends is tough. I don't know where you find it, quite honestly. Um, it's a really, really difficult problem. There, there are some options. You could go for lower dividend solutions. Um, a broad, diversified, lower dividend solution might be the NASDAQ ETF, for example. Um, still pays a dividend. I don't know what the number is. It's not much. So it might be a solution to kind of reduce the dividend on the way through um, as a percentage. That's one option you might want to think about. Um, similarly, potentially, like a, the Asia ETF, again, might do the same thing. I, I'm talking about ETFs here largely because they, they, they're lower risk in theory because they're more diversified. So that gives you some degree of protection. Not permanent, not, temp, not total protection, but some degree of protection against concentrated risk. Um, so there, there's a couple of options. You can uh, potentially sell down some of those, some of the kids' um, portfolios, and then possibly reinvest the money in your own name and pay tax in your own on your own name, and then transfer the shares to them at some future point, um, as long as you're paying the appropriate level of tax at your level, and then give them that as a gift if if your age and circumstances allow it. Um, that's another option. So you may be able to sell a portion of their portfolios, put it in cash, 
um, and then invest that cash differently. Again, as long as you're paying tax for both in both circumstances, there should be no problem with that. It's not an avoidance issue at all. You're effectively saying, look, I'm you know I'm trying to do the right thing here. Um, again, I'm not a tax accountant, so don't don't take that as tax advice. But there are there are a couple of options. But no, there is no easy option. Um, I don't even have a good solution for the government. Quite honestly, I don't know how you do it. If I'm if I was treasurer tomorrow. You know how do we how do we do it that's fair for kids but doesn't get you know screwed around with by people who are trying to mess with the system? I don't know. I just don't know how we do it. You know, it can't it can't be allowed to be a tax rule, a tax haven for for adults. Um, equally, it's messing with the kids in a way that's really really super unfair. Um, maybe it's a lockup. Maybe maybe you know the money has to go to the kids at some future point um, at, at a certain age. Maybe there's a solution there again, not for you and I, but for the government. Maybe it's like you know the kids get it at 21 and it must go into their name and they're you know they're liable for tax from there or something. Um, there's ways you could possibly think about it, but it's a, it's a devilishly hard one. I'm sorry I can't give you an easy answer, mate. But uh, yeah, a diversified ETF of tech stocks, probably um, overseas tech, is probably the where I I think I'd go. Any thoughts on that, Doc? Or uh, no, I think you've covered it. Beautiful. While we're here, speaking of EO and small stocks, I reckon, David, you probably are a member of EO, which is wonderful. But if you're not, and certainly if your fellow listeners are not, I would suggest they do that by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities is our higher risk, potentially higher return service, the, the service that we're looking to find the best and biggest winners of tomorrow and taking a bit more risk to do so. Probably a higher number of losers per winner, uh, but the winners we expect, and certainly it's been the case thus far, have well and truly paid for the losers. If that sounds like you're sort of investing, if you're looking for greater returns and happy to take a bit more volatility, a bit more risk, and please make sure that is genuinely you. Don't just hear the return bit and ignore the risk bit. We want to make sure you are uh, ready for what comes. Doc and Kevin at Extreme Opportunities doing a fantastic job of trying to find the big winners of tomorrow. So far, so good. I expect they'll continue to do very, very well. As I always say, I never want to imply a guarantee or a promise. So we can't, including my services, by the way, and everyone's services at The Motley Fool, we never give a guarantee, we never give a promise. The one thing we do promise is our best efforts to find you the best stocks we possibly can. And so Doc and Kevin will keep doing that at Extreme Opportunities for a stupidly cheap price. Like, you know, crap. I don't know where there is better value in the world. I don't know how you could spend the price of an EO subscription you get better value on anything in the entire world. Um, maybe, a, maybe a Pixel phone. You could buy, put down payment on that or something. Google's always good. Or you know, I don't know what else. What else? Don't even Google. This time. <laughs> I mean, come on. And anyway, join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. If for no other reason than Doc can rant about Apple and I can't get in his way there. So uh, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast for a very good deal on a service run by some very good guys who are doing their best to give you some very good results. Okay, let's go to Chris's question, mate. He says, hi again, Fool Kings. I like being called a Fool King. I love that. I got my jester's cap. Here's the problem. The jester kind of was supposed to be the guy who could tell the king the truth. If a fool's and kings, does that cancel itself out? Nah. Reminds me of Spaceballs. What does that make us? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) It doesn't cancel itself out? No. No? I I love whatever it is. I'm king. Fool King, King Fool, King. I don't know, something. Yeah, it's awesome. Maybe King Fools. Maybe King Fools. I can go with that. Maybe Fool Kings. Anyway, I continue to love listening each week, he says, and my Fool SA service membership continues to realise value. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. My wife and I have industry super funds with different companies, well-vested in the share market, and I wanted to get your take on whether outing, uh, putting into the same provider is seen as risky. Always fooling on Chris. I think, Doc, Chris is saying if we have the same super fund, is that a problem? Is that how you read the question? Yeah, I was trying to figure out how to read the question. Maybe that's... I think that's what he's asking. So if if there was two... If a couple had the, their money in the same industry super fund, would you be worried by that? Uh, but these things have trustee backing, right? I mean, this thing can't technically vanish. <laughs> so it's not risky from a... 
I guess, capital disappearance point of view. Yeah. The the only thing I can think of is the strategy is the same, I guess. If you, but if that's what you wanted, then that's what you wanted, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I'm not worried about it. I, I have to say, um, look, if you if you're absolutely in the in the business of complete risk minimization. You would do it in two separate providers. By definition, if there was a zero point zero zero one percent chance it happened, and you could take that away by minimising your risk, then a separate provider sure would possibly help. I got to say, there is, uh, I, you know, very all, low chance, right? Of all of the investment risks I can think of, that wouldn't make the first four hundred eighty-two of them. I, I don't know how far <laughs> down the list it would have to be. I could, I'm, not, I'm not mocking the question, Chris. It's a great question, by the way. I'm just, I'm just being clear that I think of all the risks there are in investing, this is not one of them. Uh, particularly in industry super funds. I mean, they're they're a not for profit. They are, as you say, Doc, uh, managed by trustees. Um, again, is it possible? Yeah, it'd be stupid for me to say it's impossible because you know, yeah. given guarantees, anything is dumb. Um, and frankly, in our industry, illegal. So <laughs> I don't I don't know that I'd, I I want to give that guarantee. But here's the thing, Chris. Many people, a lot, like hundreds of thousands of people, have self managed SMSFs with both a husband and wife in the same SMSF. Um, if 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 you know the the if the structure was the problem or the risk was a problem, the ATO or the government wouldn't allow that, let alone industry super funds. I have zero issue with any industry super funds. I would say go with the biggest ones you can find just because heft means something, both in terms of size and scale and scope and fees and stuff. So if in doubt, go big is probably my suggestion. Um, in the past where the industry funds have disappeared, they've largely merged with each other to form bigger ones. So rather than the reverse, uh, you're actually more likely to get a better deal than a worse one. So I will have no problem at all. Uh, again, no guarantees, but no problem at all with people being the same industry super fund. Retail super funds, because they're run by for-profit entities, I guess there's a slightly higher risk of of something going wrong. But I have to say, even then, I don't think it's likely. And again, because there's a trustee structure, um, the chances are lower. So, uh, you know, I'd be I'd be happy with either. I, I probably wouldn't. Uh, maybe I'm being too cautious. I don't think I would be in the same retail super fund as as, uh, as a spouse. Certainly, industry super funds, I have zero issue. Even there too, like I mean, the the yeah. the way it is set up is oh, totally. yeah. it, it is designed to be. Yeah, it's like nothing is hundred percent safe, right? Yeah, exactly, but, exactly. But yeah, perfect. All right. Uh, so hopefully that's answered your question, Chris. Well, uh, yeah. If, if, we, if we got the question wrong, by the way, feel free to let me know. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. Question from Stephen. Hi, Scott and Doc. Now, this is going to be an interesting one, mate. This is a this is a challenging one. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm an avid listener and love your sage advice. Thank you, mate. In a recent mailbag, you bagged gold as an investment. I think I think I know what's coming here. However, knowing you advocate trying to beat the market and investing over the long term, I'd like you to have a look at the attached chart showing the price of gold versus an ETF over the Australian market, such as an ETF called STW. As the charts show, and this make great radio, so you'll have to take our word for it. As the charts show, gold has beaten STW over a one, five, and 10-year time frame, and the trend is up. Sure, gold is not a 10-bagger, so I understand why Doc would not like it, and it doesn't pay a dividend, but given gold's performance over time and the dynamics of supply and demand, isn't it worth another look? I'd value your thoughts. Regards, Stephen. All right, Doc, he's put it, he's put us on notice. Are we completely right? 10 years? I mean, you, you bagged me for Warren Buffett losing to the market over 10 years. If we're going to apply the same logic, shouldn't you be now changing your tune and telling Stephen he's right and we're going to buy gold? But Stephen basically said that this question is not for me because uh, <laughs> I don't look at these stuff. So I think I'm in the clear. I'm just going to say I pass <laughs> and I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> that is one of the Thanks, best examples. Stephen. 
That's one of the best handballs ever. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get you for that. Uh, Stephen, I, so here's the thing, mate. Um, I think it's a, a worthwhile point to make. I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand. I'm tempted to, but I won't. So I did have a look at the graphs. Now, a couple of things to be, to be, um, a couple of things to, to be mindful of. The first is that uh, if you look at it in Australian dollars, then gold beats shares. If you look at it in US dollars, shares beat gold. So the first thing is to some degree, we are seeing the impact of the Australian dollar as much as anything else. We're also seeing it at a point where the market's absolutely fallen off a cliff and gold hasn't because it doesn't when the market falls. So if I could, if I could find a time to, look at a, to, to try and put gold in the best possible light, I would choose a time when the Australian dollar has been falling and when the share market's been falling and the price of gold's been rising. And I'd take that point and say, see, I told you. And that's kind of exactly where we are now. If you went back in US dollars back three months to February sometime, uh, the reverse is absolutely true and by a long way. Now, I don't want to, um, you know, again, I don't want to dismiss it and, and selectively choose my data and so you've selectively chosen yours and so therefore we haven't got a, a point to make. I think that the, the challenge really, I mean, people from, from Warren Buffett back, uh, and others have, have made a very very clear point a lot of a lot of the time about you know the 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 challenge of gold in terms of what it does it doesn't do or produce um, at some level I guess the only the only thing I'd say well the only the only reason for choosing gold you talk about the, the the fundamental supply and demand you'd have to believe that was true if it makes sense um, that's that's kind of the um, You've got to believe that you can somehow tell that's always going to be the case or remain the case. In fact, if anything, that you know, you have to believe that the past data shows us something, i.e. after years of not beating stocks, all of a sudden gold does beat stocks for some fundamental reason that is likely to continue. And I find that a difficult thing to try and prove out. Um, I, I just don't know whether we can make that case clearly enough in a way that, um, that justifies you know, an ongoing expectation. In other words, if all we had to do was extrapolate the past, I could find the stock that had done best over the last 10 years and buy that and say, therefore, that's the only stock to buy because it's going to keep going up. Um, we don't. We say, well, okay, what is it about the current price, the current fundamentals? Why do I believe the future is bright or brighter than another stock or another company? And then buy on that basis. And that's kind of why I think it's it, it, it's worth having a think about, right? Is that that idea of how that would otherwise come together and, and show what's going on? What, why is it that um, that gold will continue to beat the market just because it has in the past. Now, you can say something about shares, absolutely. And my answer on that one is that companies, listed companies, have delivered profit growth. And I think the same conditions that delivered that will likely deliver more profit growth over time, which is innovation, productivity, technology, a whole lot of other things we can probably roll together. So that's 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 how I'll, I'll answer that one. I don't think it's, you know, I don't want to dismiss it. I think it's a reasonable view. I would be astounded if over any length of time, gold continues to beat shares, and if it does, arguably it's more an indictment on the share market than gold. Um, I, just don't, I just don't see why there's a, there's a rational reason why gold will continue to beat shares, particularly because, frankly, every time the price goes up, it incentivizes people to add to supply. In fact, if you look at the supply and demand dynamics, a higher price should actually generate more supply, which should actually bring the price down rather than push it up. So unless you believe that somehow the gold supply is limited or too expensive to get to or that somehow the cost of that extraction is higher than the current price. I don't think any of those are true. I think it's hard to make a case that gold is got not you know is likely to keep going up um, given the the supply and demand we've talked about. Is that fair, Doc? I think so. I have nothing to add to Good that. Good question, though, Stephen. I like it a lot. Well done. 
Um, and, mate, if you, get, if you get Doc off the hook again next time, I'm not going to answer any of your questions. Put it that way. <laughs> okay. A question from Giles, Doc. Dear Scott and Doc, I hope you, are your tr- I hope you and your trusty high horse are well. Well, I'm well. You well, Doc? I am very well. Is the high horse well? Well, high horse is always well. Now, sometimes. Well, I asked him once if he was well. He said, nay. <laughs> get it? Get it? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Oh, anyway. Uh, he said, I am hoping you can help determining how you calculate capital gains on US stocks when using a brokerage account denied in US dollars. For example, if I exchange Australian dollars to US dollars, then two weeks later I buy a US stock. Down the track, I sell the stock, money remains in USD in my brokerage account, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so I think we answered this a little bit uh, a little bit last time, mate. Yeah, um, I will say, I'm just going to finish it with, he says, uh, hashtag get doc on Insta. P.S. Doc, I only say this so Scott will answer my question on the podcast. <laughs> Full on. Uh, we did answer this, mate. And we, the, do you want to just repeat our quick advice? Yeah, just a quick advice. So basically, for most people, I think what matters is uh, the day you bought the stock um, and you have a price on that day in US dollars, you can convert that price to the um, Australian dollars. And then the day you sold it, you have again a price in US dollars. You can convert that price to the um, uh, to Australian dollars. Again, the ATO actually has this uh, this data yeah. on its website uh, on a per day basis on a per month basis nice. um, and you can use whatever you want as long as I think you use it consistently so you can actually use even the per month data instead of the per day data if you want it but as long as you do it consistently I think that the ATO will not complain that's what yeah, my understanding that, is that last point is the, is the key one so as long as the rational reason and as long as you consistently apply the same approach you're sweet as a nut if you change the approach the ATO is going to be a little bit displeased mm-hmm. so Think carefully about how you do it, by the way. But generally speaking, to Doc's point, unless you're trading the currency, you know, unless there's a, a, a pattern of you trying to buy and sell and take advantage of currency fluctuations, if you're literally just sending money over there, then buying, uh, selling, and then bringing the money back or whatever it is, then the, the day of purchase exchange rate is completely fine to use in most cases. Again, we're not accountants, tax accountants. So as we generally say, please get some advice. If, you, if you're not sure, don't, don't rely on us. Because frankly, if you say to the ATO, the Motley Fool guy said... They'll laugh at you and say, "And why did you listen to them?" So, <laughs> by all means, take our take our advice as uh, or, or our thoughts as a starting point. Please don't finish with that one. All right, I got. A, wait, it wasn't even a question, Doc. I just want to read this for fun. Got a got a question from Brett. Um, it was his question. He said, "Hi, Scott. Sorry to bother you, but I heard you mention on a previous podcast behavioral investing. I can't recall if you suggested a book on the topic. Are you off? Are you able to offer any suggestions? Cheers and keep up the brilliant podcast. It fills in my many trips." on dirt roads throughout the Kimberley. And I just replied to Brett and said, mate, I'm seriously envious. The Kimberley is on my bucket list. I'm desperate to get out there. So um, we're on the east coast of Australia. It's out of Sydney. Um, I am desperate to get over the Kimberley, Brett. So I'm, I'm super, as I said to you on, on uh, private message, I'm super envious, mate, of your Kimberley lifestyle. Uh, good on you. He's, he runs a couple of businesses over there, Doc, which is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, air conditioning business and a tyre business. So I figure those are two pretty good businesses to run in the Kimberley if you're going to do that. It's a, um, it's a pretty good combination. Um, Impressively too, Brett told me that, and just to give Brett a wrap, uh, he explained to his staff the potential impact of pulling their super out, um, this $10,000 that the government let them, versus leaving it there. And he says not a single one of his employees actually took the opportunity to take out the 10 grand. So um, I, I said, Brett, you've done, your, you've done your employees a massive service. He's obviously a good boss. He took the time to say to them, hey, guys, you could, but here's the downside if you do. Uh, and they, again, made their own decision for their own circumstances, but pretty cool that Brett was able to help them. So, mm-hmm. Brett, good on you. Um, and, and well done, mate. Enjoy the Kimberley. I sent some photos, mate. If you, if you got some, I'd, I'd love to see a couple of photos of, uh, of life over there. I'm, I'm super jealous. I'm, as, as our listeners know, I've been mentioning this through the last couple of weekends with the podcasts. Uh, I am currently heading around central west New South Wales. So as far as I could get, 
I can't cross the borders. Uh, we're not going to get Victoria. Uh, and so I've, uh, we, we've, we've almost bounced up against the SA border at Broken Hill. We've gone almost up to the, uh, well, almost up to the Queensland border. We're close enough up to uh, to Burke and, and Brewerina uh, and they're coming back down, mate. So uh, yeah, very keen to get across the border at some point. We were due to be in Uluru this time, mate. I didn't get there. Very disappointing. So Brett, send us a photo. And for those who are wondering, if you haven't heard it or you didn't write it down at the time, please, please, please write down The Little Book of Behavioural Investing by James Montier. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Can't sp- it's probably almost my favourite investing book, actually, Doc. That's a very good book. When I think about it, I, I love some other books and I, it might even be my own prejudice is not letting me say it's my favourite book. It is spectacularly good. Okay, should we move on? Yeah. <laughs> Christian from Nick. I like this one. Hey, Scott, one for the mailbag about when or if to sell a dud stock. As investors, we hear a lot about the big winners, but not so much about the duds. Trust me, mate, I can tell you a lot about my duds. I got plenty. We don't have time for that. One stock in my portfolio has lost about 95%. He says, ouch, in brackets. Yep, I feel that pain. And I'm wondering if I should just cut my losses and sell or hang on to it on the off chance a miracle happens and it heads back up one day. It only makes up a tiny portion of my portfolio and I knew it was high risk when I bought it, so I'm not too bothered about the loss, but would there be any benefits to my position overall in selling it? I mainly just hate seeing the loss sitting there when I look at my otherwise healthy portfolio. Cheers, Nick. What do you reckon, Doc? So, so firstly, should you sell a loser? If so, when? And how to think about the possibility that maybe you'll come back and maybe you're selling out of at, a, at the capitulation trade at the very bottom of the market and, and maybe the, the frustration or the, the desire to, to make the loss go away is costing you money. What do you reckon? Yeah, so I, I think each position's buy or sell is really based on the merit of that particular company's current status. Um, and, well, I mean, without knowing what this company is and without doing any due diligence into it, the only thing I'll say is that when... If you have lost 95% of the value um, of a stock, basically the, the market capitalization of this thing has shrunk by 95%, typically that means a lot of things have gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. Right? A lot of things have gone wrong. <laughs> Pretty much almost everything that could go wrong <laughs> exactly. has gone wrong. Yeah. So that Only happened. 5% of it hasn't gone wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or at 5%, 5% could just be hopes and dreams, right? Dreams, yeah. hopes, and blue skies and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that. Uh, basically, this looks like it's toast without knowing, again, without yeah. knowing the full detail, but it looks like 95% down yeah. is pretty much toast. Um, so again, without knowing the mm. details, this looks like it is done. If it is done, then you might as well cut your losses. I mean, the yeah. way, you know, I, I look at around this time of the year is when I really look at are there, you know, weeds in my portfolio that need to go? Why this time of the year, mate? Well, it's, you know, the tax time is coming, right? Ah, so, so in the end of the that's end one of the, key benefit. Yeah, end of the financial year. If I've got gains yep. booked, then I am, you know, it's it's good to uh, cancel out some of the gains. I have less taxes, I guess, to pay because you get to offset some of the gains against your losses. Um, even otherwise, too, like I mean, if there's a loss and there's no potential recovery or it's not going to beat the market or whatever. Taking the loss, booking it, keeping it booked for usage against future future gains. Yep. You know, reporting it to the ATO that you made some losses, so that yep. your ATO knows that your investing was not that great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll actually inform the ATO about all my poor investing decisions. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's what I would do. Uh, but again, you know, yep. consider the company. Think about your situation. Um, it's just again general advice mm-hmm. in that context. That's what I would say. I like that, mate. I think, um, yeah, so I have to say from a uh, – I think the tax 
I honestly, tax consideration thing overrides everything else. Um, effectively, it's worth, uh, you know, I'll call it a third, roughly depends on your tax situation, of course, anywhere between zero and 47%, whatever it is, um, of your loss is in real money if you sell it rather than hold it, right? So let's say you've lost, let's say you have $1,000, let's say you've lost 950 of it. Um, that loss is probably worth somewhere two or 300 bucks-ish, right? To you as as a tax deduction or, uh, or a reduction of tax against your gains compared to worth almost nothing if you hold it, right? You've got to get a lot back to offset that gain. Now, the, the, it could come back, but that tax benefit is a really meaningful, particularly at that size loss, is a really meaningful reason to get rid of it and, and take some take some money. So th- there's that. Um, I think that probably is the major one, Doc. I think I probably would just say that's outright, unless there's a better reason to expect it to go up again. I think that's probably a good reason. Now, it could go up again. So don't sell just because it's fallen. Um, you know, now, as, as Doc says, nothing falls 95% without good reason. So, and it sounds like, as you say, it was a risky one anyway. So it sounds like the thesis is pretty busted. If it's busted and it's properly busted, then holding on the hope that maybe it might come back uh, is, is probably wishful thinking. And I get you want to. And if you sell it and doubles, you go, oh, bugger. Again, even if it doubles from here, the tax deduction is still worth more to you than the gain, quite frankly. So, so close to tax time, probably a good opportunity. We should say, by the way, Doc, unfortunately, by the time that, uh, by the time we actually, this goes to air, it'll be next year. So, uh, Nick will have missed out on tax deduction for this year, but certainly think about it for next year, Nick, as you, if you haven't already sold it, uh, as it goes from there. So think about how that might might impact your tax situation. Yeah, I can't really think of a good reason to hold it. The, the only thing I would say for what it's worth, and again, I, I don't think this is worth more than the tax deduction, is sometimes it's a really nice reminder to have a big red thing on your portfolio. You know, like it's psychically damaging, but it's also kind of one of those, you know, the, there was a story of the old Roman generals who would walk through the streets of Rome in the parades. And... Um, they had, he had a, a, I think it was a slave, someone behind him, who was reminding him he was mortal. That idea of like, don't forget you're mortal. You don't get carried away here, General, is, is kind of the message, right? It was like, you know, you, you, you're still mortal. This, this could still go badly. You're not, you're not invincible. Just, just keep your head. Sometimes being reminded of your losses is just a nice little psychic reminder to say, hey, genius, don't get too carried away with all your gains. You can, you can hide them by selling them. Uh, or sorry, losses. Don't get, you can hide your losses by selling them, but don't get too carried away. You, you make some mistakes too. And sometimes it's just a really nice, uh, when I say nice, I mean kind of painfully nice uh, way to remind yourself just to be careful next time potentially. So that might be something you want to think about. But uh, no, generally I think that the tax the tax benefit of selling seems to meaningfully outweigh any, any benefit you get by keeping it. But again, feel free to sort it out yourself. A question, mate, from JT. I have a topic for the next podcast. Can you provide some insight into either trackers or traces? I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced, but it's T-R-A-C-R-S. Trackers, traces, and if they are worth the effort for individual shares, or should you go to the effort of filling in the forms for global markets? Now, Doc, the trackers or traces, do you know how they're pronounced? Do you have an insight? Yeah, the tracers. Traces, is it? Yeah. They put it, should have put an E in there, shouldn't they? It would have made it much easier. <laughs> they didn't really make it easy for us, did they? <laughs> anyway, um, so these these instruments are a kind of, um, it's kind of a derivative kind of instrument which gives you access to US shares, some US shares on the Australian market. So you want to buy shares in Apple, you can do it by buying the Apple Tracer or Berkshire Hathaway or Amazon or I don't know whatever companies they cover. Um, and you effectively get an exposure to that company as if you own the shares here on the ASX. Now, it's a ChiX product. Um, so I say on the ASX, it's trade on ChiX. So it's kind of one of those weird things where we've got two different market makers going on here. But effectively, Australian-based interest into a US company. Now, Doc, I know you've looked at this before. What do you yeah. make of it? So it's effectively it's like it's the you know the so the the Americans have this thing called American Depository Receipts, right? Yeah. Which is um, uh, foreign companies which are listed primarily in a foreign market, uh, where you basically take a bunch of shares of that 
hold it on, in trust in a bank yeah. and then effectively have shares issued in in response to those yeah. um, uh, shares held in the bank. Yeah. Right? So this is the same concept effectively, but in, in mm. Australia. Basically, mm. some shares are held here. So each tracer does correspond, from what I understand, to a share mm. a interest. Mm. They trade here in uh, AUD. And um, the issuers basically are making money off dividends. They're taking, I think, something off the dividends. Okay. But if there's no dividend, then they're not getting anything actually off it. Yeah, right. Which at some point is kind of good for you, but if they don't make enough money, they're going to close this thing down. Yes. Was it UBS had one here, I want to say like 10 RBC years ago? RBC or- I was, RBS. R- RBS. Sorry, RBS, you're right. Had so they had one of these and they closed it down again because yeah. basically they didn't make enough money out of it. It wasn't worth them keeping going. Yeah. Now, you know. Do if they close it down, I mean, you get your money back, right. I guess. Have you done enough work? So my only concern here, mate, is have you done enough work into the instrument to know that it's safe enough to be suggesting our, our listeners buy? Are you comfortable enough? Are so I, I, don't know. The spot? I think it's, it's chess registered as far right, as I okay. understand or somehow it's chess registered and if from what I, what I understand. It looks like I haven't done enough work to be 100% confident. I've not. Here's yeah. my I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I put you on the spot. I just, yeah. want to, just want to, before we tell people it's okay. No, here's my thing. This is a very simple thing. It is relatively straightforward these days to actually. So so here's the problem, I think, with this category as a whole right now. Yeah. Is it is relatively simple to actually buy US shares today. It mm-hmm. used to be hard 10 years ago. It's relatively simple to buy US shares off a US broker. Yeah. And the costs are insignificant okay if that's the trend I don't understand how mm. um, a an ADR reverse ADR or an ADR equivalent type of product mm-hmm. is um, you know has a future yeah. maybe it has a future maybe it has doesn't have a future that's the question I would have um, yeah. it, this is provided by as you said ChiX or ChiX mm-hmm. um, so I mean it's, it's a product they've got I think 30 or 40 odd of them and they're yeah now listed yeah. um, many of the big names are there mm-hmm. so I haven't done enough work actually to yeah I, myself, I wasn't going to put you but I just want to make sure we before we suggest people they should go and do it or they might go and do it just to make sure we've had a look at it I, I gotta say I haven't looked enough guys I really haven't um, uh, Doc has had a bit of a look at it which is nice so he's got more of an idea you can see a heap of information on the website so it's tracrs.com.au excuse me see tracrs.com.au give you a sense of uh, all the stuff you want to know about it. Um, just, I, I would just proceed slowly. I have no reason to believe there's a not great investments, by the way. I'm also, though, not prepared yet to say, yeah, you should definitely do it. Um, so just, just be, just please be mindful of that. Again, I, I'm not suggesting anything. Um, just just wanting to make sure that people understand what they're buying and why they're buying and how it might work. So have a think about that for me just uh, before you before you jump in. Fair to say, Doc? Yeah, I think very fair. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a heap. There's, uh, I'm just looking at the list now. There's 3M, AT&T, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Bank of America. So, you know, there's Berkshire. There you go. Uh, plenty of them there. Not a lot traded, by the way. Man. I'm looking at the volumes here. There's only four of the traces actually have volume against them, uh, if that might tell you something as well. So just be careful about the price you pay and how you, how you trade I think those. they have market makers for these, is okay. what I understand. So they're market makers, which means you'd get relatively, should get relatively good prices. I mean, the market maker, of course, make... A few cents here and there. <laughs> nice. There you go. All right. Uh, hopefully that gives you some information. I, like Doc, would just invest directly uh, internationally, but I also get that people might want to do it here and I can understand that that vibe. Uh, question from Aiden, mate. 
uh, who at the end of the end of his question says, first name only, please. Aiden, trust me, you don't want to trust on my ability to pre-read the question enough to realise that I shouldn't say your last name. So do me a favour. If you're going to ask for your first name only, do it at the top of the email for me <laughs> so I know to, to exclude it before I read the whole lot. But in this case, I caught you. Hi, Scott and Doc. I've been a follower of your services for a little while but I only discovered the podcast in the last couple of months. What a revelation. I think you meant it a good way or a bad way? I think it's a good way. You know revelation of the Bible is the end of the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering whether that's his point. With like, yeah, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you, me, I'm not sure who the other two would be, but we'll, um, we'll assume he means in a good way. Love listening to your opinion of everyone's questions. Got a question for the podcast on my own if you've got time. We do. With your discussion of coal and renewables on the pod recently, I got thinking about the battery company Redflow and would be interested in your thoughts on them. Is this a company that has the potential to seriously challenge lithium storage? What's taking them so long to get traction? Thanks in advance, Aiden. Now, I'm going to assume you're hopelessly conflicted, Doc, about the right battery technology. Is that fair to say? Or can you give us a uh, an unbiased Tesla-free view of, of Redflow? Um, so I actually <laughs> – here, here I think – okay. So my unbiased view would be any – a battery is a commodity. Yes. Right. So battery is a, is, is a commodity because lithium uh, batteries have been made for ages. And when you say battery here, you're not talking about the whole thing. You're talking about just the literal power cell yeah. is the commodity. Yeah, so I was going to come to that. Basically, okay, we're, sorry. We're, so, <laughs> so you stole my thunder. <laughs> but, so when, when, we, when we say battery, it, it actually what people are referring to is cells, battery cells. Right. And the lithium cells are the, exactly the same cells that people use for charging their rechargeable blah, blahs. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's exactly those same. The, there's a... There's a there are a couple of other things that happened. One is there is some proprietary chemistry that goes into uh, certain cells. Is that even possible? I mean, there's only so many ways this can happen. How can yeah, it be proprietary? Yeah, so there is proprietary. So there's, you know, the cells, for example, that Tesla uses in its cars right. um, are not used anywhere else. Is it proprietary though? Is it, sorry, well, I guess, is it protected or is it just literally they only make it themselves? No, no, no. So Panasonic make, makes the cells for them. So it's, right. it's it patent protector or whatever it is. Like okay. It says some unique chemistry. Now, huh. how does the unique chemistry, how much does it matter? Right. Maybe a little bit. Okay. Right? And then, the, you know, over time, they would take away, like, you know, there's a cobalt, for example. Right. Uh, is, uh, cobalt has a number of issues because it's where, from where it is mined yeah, mostly. Okay. Yeah. And then cost, cobalt is expensive. Right. And also its sourcing is, is a problem. So Tesla's, for example, been reducing cobalt in its cells. Okay. Right? So there's some. Advantages there, but the most of the most of the, I think the wins come from actually taking the cells and creating what's called packs, basically assembling right. the cells and putting them together along with other cooling technologies and al- along with software technology to make the the pack nice um, efficient. Right, right, so which is cool, right? Because I mean, I, I got to say, I, you and I have talked about this before, so I did know this, but. Um, but it's not something I ever would have thought of at all. You kind of figure a battery is a battery is a battery. It's sort of lithium, some ions, some other bits and pieces. You whack them together. It's all much of a muchness. But the way it's done, both the chemistry and the and the collation or the the kind of manufacture, whatever you want to call it, to do that together, is a really meaningful difference. Yeah, like it can create some efficiencies. Like I mean, it's basically engineering and engineering ingenuity. Now, engineering ingenuity, I will point out, is always catchable or like yeah. somebody else can catch it over time. The the but I think what people don't think about is the fact that if somebody has engineering ingenuity and they're mm. therefore able to get some benefits, they will probably be on to something else by the time people are. Yeah, right. right. Now, of course- Watch your head, you kind of stay ahead yeah, if you, yeah. more often, right? Yeah, yeah. The headroom that you get. And yeah. the headroom becomes, um, at some point, the headroom does not matter. Right. Yeah. You know, once yeah. you've got like, you know, now computers are fast, 
does it really matter if it's a little bit faster, right? You yeah, know what right. I mean? Like, but right now for batteries, it matters in terms of cost. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, right? yeah, okay. So, so cost in so in, the early, in the early days, while, while development's still kind of underway, yeah. it matters a heap more. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yep. yeah. Yep. So that's the, the context of lithium-ion batteries and right. so on. Can an alternative technology come and replace lithium-ion battery? Absolutely, it can. Is there something yeah. uh, right now there in the market? I don't know. I mean, I, this is chemi- this goes into chemistry, and and so I have some higher level views on this in terms of. So the problem for any battery company today would be to compete with the other major players, right? So, and, yeah. and the problem with the ma- other major players, like for example, if you're competing, competing with Tesla, Tesla is producing these battery packs at mm-hmm. scale much larger than anybody else is doing. Yeah, right. There's actually no other large battery pack producer in the world today other than Tesla because the Tesla, makes, Tesla is in the largest EV producer, right? Yeah, okay. So at scale. There are other people who are producing batteries yeah, yeah, but yeah. they're not producing battery packs, packs right, so that's course, an, a small distinction yeah, so right, right. it is hard to compete on price um, also it's hard for smaller companies to compete in technology so I, unless you invent something radically new and different and radically efficient um, it's hard to compete it becomes yeah, really right. hard to compete yeah. so that's my you know that's it I don't know enough about what uh, Redflow is do, doing in terms of chemistry but yeah. I, I feel that you know that's how I look at this is a gen- genetic answer mm. as to why it is hard to compete with Tesla in yeah. batteries yeah. is because nobody else is actually doing it at that scale mm. right and therefore what they can eke out in terms of kilowatt hour from mm, their particular mm, batteries mm. is hard for other people to actually eke out at least so it's fascinating. Redflow actually use zinc bromine flow batteries, apparently. Um, so very, very different technology, of course, and to some degree, is 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 battery tech done? I mean, is lithium ion obviously the the future of tech? Is it the best tech right no. now? Is it because uh, I, no, no? I think so. Here's the thing, right? Everybody's assuming that's the tech. Um, it could be zinc bromide or whatever else is there. That's my point. Is that it is really hard to say what? It's hard to say that. Lithium is the answer. Is right? it the answer right now? Well, it's right now. That's the one that is heading down the cost curve, right? Yeah, that's okay. the one that's being used in cars. That's the one that's is reducing yeah. cost. That's the one to to get to some magical figure that will make, um, you know, the yeah. the the electric vehicle uh, parity achieved with um, uh, with uh, with an ice car and ice age car. I like that. And <laughs> internal uh, combustion engine. For internal, those yeah, for those, yeah. You know, ice <laughs> internal combustion engine. But I like to use ice, ice age. age. Nice, nice. Um, and I, and I think it, there is that scale effect. That once you achieve parity, yep. you can produce for the batteries. Yeah, that then you can use towards uh, energy. So you have to be radically yeah. efficient in terms of cost yeah. to uh, to beat it out, I think. It's a fascinating – I mean, we'll never know the answer, right? But there's a fascinating hypothetical about if Elon had never made cars – but have gone into battery storage purely, home storage, for example, home batteries. I wonder if lithium ion would have been the would have been the, the tech of choice. It's a funny kind of idea because obviously, if you put it in a car, it has to be more stable than than a effectively. I think the red flows are a liquid battery from memory, zinc bromide. So obviously, one well, obviously, but I assume you don't want that sort of sloshing around your car as you're driving. So lithium ion makes perfect sense for a, for a you know for a a, a a mobile battery, and then it makes no sense if you're making that for the cars. You're not going to try and do a whole second thing for the homes, right? The the whole idea is they work together nicely, and you get the economy of scale and stuff like that. It, I mean, we don't answer it here unless you do know the answer, but it's interesting hypothetical to wonder 
what he might have done if, if he'd only been in charge of Redflow, for example, and try to come up with a battery technology that, that might work for home storage. You know, I have a simple thesis for what I call the great company thesis. <laughs> the great company thesis is a, is a company that does multiple things across multiple stacks. Basically, vertical integration that doesn't appear to... That would appear at first glance to give you no advantage, but right, right, most right. of the great companies in the world are actually kings of doing multiple things at multiple layers right, right, together, right. putting them in ways that gives them unbelievable advantages. Right, so like putting like Geico and Seize Candies and Coca-Cola and American Express together in the same company, for example. Like so Berkshire, is that what you mean? No. <laughs> Aiden, I am blaming you and only you for making me talk about Tesla. I can't believe it. Well, you, 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 since you <laughs> since you brought up Berkshire, Berkshire here's, here's actually something else I read today. Oh, Apparently, um, it's getting late in the day, guys. Well, but you but there's one little company in uh, in that in other little company's portfolio. <laughs> which apparently now accounts for more than half of the equity value of the equity stuff held by that little company. I thought it was 20% that we were told the other day. Is it now 50, surely? Oh, the equity portfolio. Probably, yeah. Yes. It's apparently 20% of the market cap in total, apparently. Well, there you go. That is, I mean, you, you, you guys should be thanking my guys. I don't know. You work for us. Ah, come on. You work for us. Yeah, Dr. Ross is talking about Apple and uh, Berkshire. 20% of Berkshire's market cap is now in Apple shares and from the sound of it, 50% of the equity portfolio. I hadn't read that one. Is that the number today? Yeah. You're, you should be thanking us for the for the, for the, for the, uh, the uh, hands-off ownership uh, culture that we're, we're imparting to I, Apple. I, I think, you know, uh, Warren Buffett should be call, <laughs> calling Tim Cook and saying, you're an awesome capital allocator. Thank you for actually getting the share prices running up. Uh, you know, thank you for helping me out with my portfolio. Uh and maybe he should just buy more Apple shares. I, I'm sure he will be. I don't know. In fact, I, I said to you before, actually, I, I don't know what number I said. I made, I, what, do you know what percentage Berkshire owns of Apple? Oh, so it's pretty large for a large company. Yeah, I yeah. think 7 8%. Yeah. I, I think it'll get to 20%. Well, because of share buybacks. I think both. I think, I think they'll probably, if given, given the opportunity, they may well buy some more shares from time to time. And I actually, yeah, totally. I mean, Buffett's all about that, right? He's, he's, for a long time, one of his hallmarks of the companies he's bought. Uh, you know, he has to sell Wells Fargo shares every now and again to keep his ownership under 10% because Wells keep buying shares back. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think, honestly, yeah, I, I'd be, I'd be, if, well, Buffett won't be around to see it. Unless something dramatic changes, I think Berkshire will own at least 20% of Apple at some future point. Well, That's just be Berkshire and myself, then only Apple. You just lost out. Why is that? But you didn't buy any Apple. I own Berkshire. I own you. But you, you, work, like 20, you, you work for me. You work for me. Only 20%. <laughs> it's getting late, Phil. We've, we've done, we've done uh, what is it, six different episodes today, a couple of short ones and a couple of long ones. So um, we, we've had You're fun. You're just it's probably, it's probably, it's, <laughs> I think we're done. I think we're done. <laughs> luckily for us, luckily for you, dear Phil, that was the last question. Aiden, thank you. Well, I want to say thank you for your question. Actually, Doc, before, before I do, because we did, that was a massive tangent. Um, do you have a view on Redflow, I assume? Uh, unfortunately, like I, I mean, yeah, I, I just think, yeah, as I said, oh, Tesla, like, just talk about Revit. Don't talk about Tesla. Just reply. Don't I, do it. Don't just, do it. <laughs> no, no. I just think that area is still in uh, this entire battery area is still in very sort of early formative days. Yeah. And you, you know, it's I just the point I was trying to make is it's really hard for small companies to yeah. survive in like not not sort of. To, to flourish yeah. in a rapidly changing and evolving environment. So, mm. And that's one of the reasons I've not looked at, looked at it very carefully is that I just find that area is so rapidly, dynamically changing. Yeah, fair. And I don't understand enough of the chemistry and things like that. Um, 
say it's been a company that I have I know that exists, but I have not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find the technology and idea cool. I think you know I, I like the the overall goal that these companies have, but it's just it. it I generally don't put things in a too hard basket. Yeah. I try not to. Yeah. This is just one of those that I go, it's too hard. <laughs> I, I just put it in the too hard basket for it, yeah, at least yeah, for the yeah. time. Yeah, nice. I, um, I'm going to actually mention Tesla, mate. You know, I'm going to do it nicely, so you'll be happy to hear this. Uh, so, you know what? The, I reckon the question, honestly, is largely about the company's ability to attract attention and interest and buyers. And I think to your point, Doc, batteries. So I've got, I've got a Tesla Powerwall one, right? It was a uneconomic decision that I made. So, you know, not very rational for an investor because I wanted to store some of the power off my off my roof and add a little bit back to both the adoption of Tesla Powerwalls and a bit more to the, to the environment. I, I, it's, it cost me money. I could have, on, on a pure payback basis, I'm, I'm poorer than if I hadn't put the battery in at all. Um, now, the batteries have improved since then. They've doubled capacity. They'll probably double again. When a Powerwall 3 comes out, I'll probably buy one because I reckon at that point, it'll actually be economically sensible to do so. But in the meantime, um, if you if you want to go electric, if you want to think about electric car or electric, you know, uh, uh, literally home battery, Tesla is the brand. And when they're already uneconomic or, or thus far uneconomic, um, if you're doing it, you're doing it because you care and because you probably have heard about it and because Tesla's probably front of mind because of everything that Elon is and does and all the cars and everything else. I'm, I'm absolutely sure. To, to your point, to your question, why is it done? I think, I think honestly, Redflow is, is fighting against, in a very small market with an economic investment or an economic payback, I should say, um, there's only so many players that can actually literally <laughs> make you worse off by buying their products. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, by the way. Like, in all seriousness, I think Tesla is doing what it can to get adoption up, to get scale, to, to bring down prices. All those things will happen. I'm sure Redflow is trying the same thing. That just the simple reality is when I went to buy a, a, a battery for my, my, my house, I, I kind of I knew Redflow existed because we've kind of we've cut it on over time on and off. Um, there are others that, that others you know even the, the guy who did the battery like you have this one or the Tesla one. Uh, this one might be better than Tesla. What do you reckon? I said, oh, look, I'll take the Tesla. Thanks anyway. And it was largely a bit of brand, a bit of you know I knew what I was getting, a bit of um, I felt good about the company, the technology. So it was really one of those weird things where there's just not I don't think there's enough demand at really relatively uneconomic prices. And Doc, you may have a view on this, but for for enough companies to survive and thrive, and I think. Whenever uh, battery technology, whether it's zinc bromine, whether it's lithium ion, whether it's something else, all of them, something, you know, whatever it is, eventually they become economic and then it changes the adoption curve. But I think right now, the people who are getting power walls are largely either somehow finding a way to do it economically. I don't know how you do it. I've done the math. I don't think it works, which is fine. Uh, but doing it for largely environmental reasons, doing it for reasons of, of kind of you know, um, they want to be involved, they want to be a part of the either, either for trend or for you know, mind literally. I mean, I don't mind a Tesla Powerwall on the wall it makes me feel kind of cool. But you know, I knew I was effectively contributing to an uptake in, in some small way of of helping Tesla get to scale and and hopefully improving the environment. So that was our decision as a family. We just chose to do that and and sink a couple of grand on an ROI basis. Um, but you know, would I do that or Redflow? I could have done either, I suppose. Uh, but not given I wasn't sure about Redflow and didn't really know enough about the technology, it's kind of easy to choose the the market leader, right? The brand everyone knows, the product everyone knows. Like everything, no, no one got fired for buying IBM. I reckon if you're buying a battery for the wall, um, you're going Tesla because it's Tesla because it's Tesla. And as much as that seems almost kind of irresponsible, I think that's, you know, that 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 shortcut, the heuristic of saying I'll just buy the market leader because I figure I've got the best chance of getting the best outcome, I don't think it's unreasonable. I think that's right. I mean, I thought the brand value always helps. You know, you want to buy an EV, you buy that's a huge. Tesla. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? You want to buy a battery, you you know, as a consumer, you, I think Tesla comes front and center. Yeah. Some people will buy other things, but I think that that 
that mental recoll- uh, you know, recollection is you know, that's why I mean it's a very simple thing. That's why people buy coke over. Pepsi. Yeah, uh, yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah, you know, you that's why Woolies puts it higher up than puts yeah, up. You know, absolutely. it's just it's just yep. the brand recognition is actually it's yep. something. It's totally. an intangible, uh, but it's it's a very strong factor. But this has been our last question for a relatively long podcast, longer than we normally go for the mailbag. But frankly. Uh, we felt good. We were having a good day and, you know, Doc and I had a lot of fun with that one. So hopefully you enjoyed listening to that particular podcast. If you didn't, then my apologies. If you did, then you're welcome. And remember, of course, uh, if you ever want to know what a horse wants to do, just ask him. I guarantee he'll say nay. Sorry. Okay, before we go, don't forget you can – we're not drinking, by the way. Only Coke and water, I promise. You Don't forget you can and should subscribe to the AAA and Motley for Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app or the Podcast One app on Apple and Android. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Tell your friends, leave us a review. Help us spread the foolish word because, hey, if you've had to sit through the last hour, other people should have to too, goddammit. And don't forget, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and you get an offer to join Dividend Investor as well. Go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Tuesday with some money hacks and a little more foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.